Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam here, as always, with Andy Cullinan from Austin. Andy, it's it's been a few days. Hope you're keeping warm lately. How, how are things going down there? You know, it's been a, a crazy week. You know, I think there's been a lot of discussion around tyranny and its invasion of our sovereignty and the sovereignty of others. And I think we just need to get it out in the open. I'm going to tell this story about what happened to me this week with my apartment complex and their parking policy. Oh, no. The greatest. The ultimate, the ultimate just corruption. Dude. Apartment complexes. and Name a more iconic duo of just scumbaggery than uh, like apartment complexes and towing companies and like the, the relationship oh. they have, dude. So I'll say this. I've lived at like a bunch of apartment complexes in Austin. I've lived in everything from like total beater, like East Riverside apartments that are like less than a thousand dollars a month, which if you live in Austin, you know, that's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty low price point. When I was in my early 20s, I really wanted a ball, and I went out and got an apartment that was way too nice and way too expensive for what I was making. But Do I not ball? Do I not ball? And, and I'll say this. The parking policies of an apartment are directly correlated with what they think they can get away with. So at oh, the yeah. really high-end luxury ones, they know that like people's daddies have lawyers or people have the money that to, to like give a shit. And so – I've never been towed out of a nicer apartment. The money complex. to not give a shit, basically. The money to not give a shit. Just like throw away the yeah. They'll do whatever you ask them. At an apartment complex like we're living at now, which is Cassie and I made a conscious decision to like find a really affordable place to live while they built our house because we were like, all right, we're building this house. It's going to cost a lot of money when we when we finish that process. Let's save every dollar we can by by living in this lower end apartment complex. And in an apartment complex like this, where they know that like. People are like living paycheck to paycheck on average. They have them by the throat as far as you have to have your car to get to work. And so they have this insane parking policy here. So I come out uh, my, recently in this same apartment complex. My wife's front license plate was stolen. Only the front license plate, which is a bizarre, terrible crime. <laughs> Both morally and like for efficiency purposes, like you're an idiot. Um, my wife is like the ultimate rule follower and she called the police and god dude the like shout out to the Austin Police Department I'm sure you guys go through a whole bunch of rough shit but like I didn't need you to tell my wife that do not drive your car if we see that plate it has a bolo on it we'll pull the car over with guns drawn no matter who is in the car <laughs> which like of course that scares Cassie to death like my pregnant wife is going to freak out about that and so Cassie will not drive her car um so I've been driving her to work picking her up doing that kind of stuff yeah you know that whole conversation about police brutality we've had in the last two years yeah just uh let's just table that for now because her license plate got stolen okay Be being that as it may i came out on like wednesday or tuesday to go it was like four o'clock and i was gonna go pick my wife up from work and as i got out to my car i looked at on my driver's side window was one of those like six inch by eight inch unpeelable stickers that they put on your car if you're parked illegally like downtown when they boot you they put one of these on your car and it's like 30 degrees it's raining and i'm trying to like get this sticker off and it, you know it comes it comes off in like pieces the size of an ant so you just like can't get the yeah. sticker off and it's like permanently glued and on the sticker it says you are parked illegally we're gonna tow this vehicle if if it's not if the situation isn't rectified in 10 days and at the bottom it says reason expired registration tag 
So my apartment complex sent their towing company around. Wait, you're like state of Texas, like driving registration tag? So not like your parking pass. The state of Texas is like effectively your inspection sticker that you get from, from the state every year was out of date. And I, there was probably 30 that I could see from my from my car. They had papered like half the lot because, you know, it's like COVID. People don't want to go to the DMV. They're not using their cars as much. And so like they're letting stuff like that lapse. And again, and they like, literally can't go to the DMV because there's no appointments. Right. So I'm sitting there like this is this is crazy. Like you're going to tow my vehicle from a standing position like I'm not driving it and you're not a cop and yeah, you don't need registration to have a parked vehicle. You need correct. a registration to drive. Then they're two different things. And then I'm like, okay, on top of that. So I, I start Googling and I quickly find out that like, it is absolutely illegal to do that. Like a landlord is not allowed to tow a car for a registration sticker. That's a very old landlord trick actually that they had to put in a specific law about because of this exact situation. And the only reason that a apartment complex would tow your car for that is because they are getting like the towing company, of course, being how the amazing businessmen that they are. And they're giving a portion of that to this apartment complex in exchange for their business. Right. So they have like a nice little legal bribery type situation. So I called the apartment and I'm like, hey, I've lived here for a year. My wife lived here before, you know, we got married. Uh, we have we pay our rent on time every month. You increased rent by 20% year over year, which is pretty crazy given that this apartment complex sucks and there's no improvements. I didn't add that. That's just, you know, internal dialogue. And yeah. I'm like, and I came out today to dr go pick up my pregnant wife from work. And there's a sticker that I cannot remove on my driver's side window. And it's so big. I can't see out of the driver's side window without ducking. So it's like a, it's like actually dangerous in my opinion to like have this on the car. Right. And I'm like, and it says it's about the, the, uh, inspection sticker, which, you know, great and i was like I'll, I'll a couple things one i'll go get the sticker taken care of for me you know for so that i don't get a ticket from a cop but you're, you're not allowed to tow my car if you tow my car it's theft so please don't do that and please don't put unremovable trash on my car because you want to kick back like that's that's pretty ridiculous and this guy Did you tell them that yeah the kickback part yeah oh yeah <laughs> i mean i wanted it to be very out in the open that i knew what the situation was and the guy was just like we're not saying that you're getting towed we're saying that you you're going to get towed in 10 days and i was like even if i went and put in a request for the sticker today like if i got it inspected today and requested the sticker what are the chances the texas state department of motor vehicles is going to get me that sticker within 10 days like negative five percent maybe like <laughs> You might as well just give them the keys to your car and walk out of the office. And on top of that, like, I've looked up the code, and it's illegal for you to do that. And he goes, well, no, because this is private property. I was like, right, but you're my landlord, right? And he goes, yeah, that's right. I'm your, we're, your, we're your landlord, so we can't. I was like, no, the wording of the law says landlords can't do that. He's like, well, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> Dude, and I'm telling you that in that moment, like— my you had the my, cartoon steam coming out of your ears oh it was just so fucking frustrating and then i went around i go on a walk every night around this apartment and it's a big circle so i just make these laps and one of the things that i thought was so funny was there's a spot in our parking lot where they parked this like derelict police car like an old police car that doesn't ever move and it's like covered in dust and it's there as like a deterrent right like it looks if someone it's so weird if the idea is it's like a scarecrow for burglars right like if someone came in to break into cars they'd see this cop car parked there and hopefully be like 
uh, not, you know, not worth it or whatever. I don't think that's how criminals work, but whatever, especially because it's so dusty that people have written like with their finger on the window being like, Ooh, much police, very safe, extra protect. The, the, The idea that criminals both like stake out their victims, but then also don't have the intelligence to stake out enough detail to be like, Oh, clearly that car has dust all over yeah. it and the tires are empty with like it hasn't moved in years that opens up a whole extra discussion about like does deterrence for crime work which like there's a very famous uh experiment from england in the 1900s or the late 1800s where they had a huge pickpocketing problem in london and so they announced they were going to ha- publicly hang the next 10 pickpockets they caught as like a you know ha this will this is going to teach the pickpocketers. So they catch these 10, you know, street kids pickpocketing, and they publicly lynch them, and the whole town comes out, and at that lynching, there was, like, a record amount of pickpocketing in the crowd, which just shows, like, empirically that, like, criminals do not view themselves as, like, the one that's going to get caught. Every criminal thinks they're just, like, a little bit smarter right. than all the other criminals, and that's why they do crime. So, yeah, so this that doesn't – but the funny part of this was that they put one of these stickers on that car. Like, it's there. That's your car, bro. So, yeah. Insanely frustrating situation. Um, I'm super glad I have the wife I do. She, like, we got home. I was so fucking pissed off. I'm, like, <laughs> just making idle threats. And she just, like, calmly, like, got home, went and got the goo gone. Dude, I, I'm... That sucks. I'm so glad that I'm not doing the apartment thing anymore. It's it's the worst. They, they try to take advantage of you at every situation. Like, I had, um, I had a situation a few years ago. My last apartment I ever moved out of they made some comment offhand like they they were switching management right as i was leaving my apartment and they made some offhand comment about like basically what i'm going to be able to keep from my deposit and things like that like well we have to do the tour and decide how many damages there are and me and my roommate went above and beyond making sure that we didn't do any damage and anything we did that we repaired and like this place was spotless and I was like adamant. I was like, we're going to go through, I'm going to go through with one of you guys through the apartment. I want to be with you when you do this damage check because I don't believe you. And I was very upfront about that. And then we scheduled it and we started walking through with it. And they made the comment like, well, this whole check we're doing isn't the real check because we need to have our handyman with us. And I was like, all right, let's reschedule. So then I came back like a week later. We did it with the handyman present and the office manager present. Walked through the whole place, took a bunch of photos, like signed on the dotted line. There's no damage. We all agreed on it. I have email proof. Literally like a year later, they send me an invoice for like $500. Oh, God. And I just was like, well, go ahead and uh, put a credit. What do they call it when like you, uh, like a debtor's? Yeah, send it to collections. Whatever you call it. Yeah. Send it to collections, you, you know, send it to collections because I'm, I'm not going to pay that. I'm not going to respond to it. Like if you really want that $500 that bad, you're going to have to work for years to get yeah, it. You're going to have to cut and it out of me, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, because I, I have the receipts, dude. Like I'm not going to give you that money. You're slimy as hell. Like that's one of those examples, dude, where it's like, it's expensive to be poor. Like people don't think about oh, yeah. those things when they're, when they're talking about like rent and stuff, but like. There is an entire second economy of just, like, scumbags taking advantage of people that don't have another option. Like, a lot of people, most people that are renting apartments can't just, like, pick up and move or, like, afford to just, like, fight something out in court and don't want their credit ruined. I mean, we've talked before on this podcast about, um, you know, the nature of, like, the justice system and how, like, how many people just settle. You know, they just take a plea because they can't afford to, to spend three days in jail even waiting for a hearing they can't afford a lawyer 
Um, and so there's tons of people that have felonies even on their record that are totally innocent and they just couldn't afford to fight it out. And that's, it's another thing like that where it's like this apartment complex knows that like the vast majority of people they put that sticker on, uh, they get towed are just going to pay it and because they need their car back. They're not going to sit around and like go get a lawyer and like have them look at the, you know, the nature of the agreement we signed, we moved in and like all that other stuff. They're just like gambling on the idea that it's going to be profitable for them to right. fuck everyone. Like it sucks. Dude, there, there, there are entire industries built around like people that get shafted with low level crimes that, and, 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 and again, not saying that, a, these laws don't have a place, of course, or like, of B, there aren't people that are absolutely breaking these and should be punished or whatever, but like, the example that I give is talking to my, um, my I, I've got somebody in my family who was a, a, a district attorney, mm-hmm. and talking to them about, um, like, drinking and driving crimes, like, somebody will have literally one glass of wine, will get arrested, like, in the state of Texas, you don't have to be proven to be um, intoxicated, yeah. the the officer can just thank your, into- like, this is written in the law, like, the officer can thank your intoxicated arrest you upon an arrest like you get uh, i think it's like 180 days where your license gets um suspended no matter what like even if they even if they release you the next day and then also like the all these people who run these classes on drunk driving or like the mad courses and stuff where it's like dude you have to pay for those right yeah and so it becomes a whole system like a, a miniature economic system where it's like in order to, for those people to keep their jobs who run these courses, who run these programs, yep. they need people to get arrested. Oh, yeah. One of the biggest – one of my biggest customers last year at work was the guys that do the interlock systems, like the blow to start your car guys. And they make those units and they make the software and, dude, they're making $500 million a year. Like there's a huge economy there. I mean I almost don't blame them, but it's just like – you look, step back and look at that system. The one I always think about too is like I, I got this apartment once and it didn't come with washer and dryer. And so I was like, okay, like you can rent a washer and dryer, right? And I went and looked at one of those like cons places. I have never seen a, a more like obvious scam. It's like, okay, we have this $900 washer. You're going to pay us 120 bucks a month for three years and then we take the washer back. So you end up paying like – four or five grand for this $900 washing machine and then you don't get to keep it <laughs> like it's it's like uh, it's like leasing a car but without the luxury like the reason you release a car is like because you want the latest model at all exactly times you want to feel like you have a new car but this is like the it's the same model but it's like taking advantage of people that don't have the money up front. exactly it's a different people group i guess it's yeah like i mean it's crazy I, it's one of those things where like I'm sure that somewhere I could encounter someone that a payday loan saved their life. You know what I mean? Like they, they they were very financially responsible and they just came up short one time and they just needed this loan for three days and it worked out great. But the spirit of the industry seems incredibly horrible to me. It's just like waiting for people oh, yeah. to be in a vulnerable spot and then being like, well, what are you going to do? not pay your rent yeah. like you're just like god dude yeah and then they hide behind the ruse of like we're helping people that need help and it's yeah. like yeah, i mean sort of but like in really predatory terms if you like, if you, you were know, really helping like, people that needed help you wouldn't need to uh found all of your companies on indian reservations to hide from federal law like that's it's never a great start dude right like yeah well, okay, so let's get to writing. This is a yes. writing podcast, right? Uh, this week, you know, we talked about two different ideas, show ideas that we wanted to discuss. One of them was Station Eleven, 
which we kind of hit on with our last episode, which by the way, I don't think this episode's going to come out right on time. I actually think we're going to do um, our Euphoria episode and then maybe our cool. Batman episode. So this might be coming out a few weeks late, but if you heard us talk about Station Eleven a few weeks ago, this episode is going to kind of serve as a little bit more of a deep dive. But then, Andy, if we had time, I also did want to talk about The Power of the Dog because I, I just finished watching it today, and it is University of Fuego at Montana. I'm so stoked that so you good. loved Station Eleven. Like, I was so hyped about that show when I got my hands on it, and you were kind of like the first person I really told about it in detail. And then the fact that you got into it too just makes me feel really good about my my choice. Because, you know, there's nothing worse than getting really excited about something and telling someone, and then, then they go watch it, and they're like... Yeah, I, I don't know, dude. I, I watched like one episode. I couldn't get into it. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you what. This is, an ep- this is a show that I could see somebody getting into and having that same reaction, the one episode and out, just because yeah. I started thinking more about the show. And I think there's a lot of shows you could say this about, but it, it, I don't think it applies as much as Station Eleven does. Is It is – it's very artistic. It's very theme-driven. It's got a lot of – nuance and foreshadowing and things and it it is in ways it's a total slow burn and you really have to be paying attention the whole time and i could like as i was watching the show i always think about what the audience would be for this show and i think writers if you haven't seen station 11 like writers would love station 11 people who read a lot of novels especially like um literary novels would love station 11 people who that's not kind of their cup of tea if you're kind of more into like sort of thinking about like this is us. Yeah. Talk about this is us last night with another writer friend. If your version of drama is this is us, you probably won't like station 11. Cause this is not, it's not very spoon fed, right? Sure. It's- yeah. I'd agree with you. Um, I also think that there is a degree of exhaustion around pandemic themed media. And I do not fault anyone for not wanting to dive into like yet another so there's this virus <laughs> type show. Yeah, um, yeah. But in a, you know, we, we talked about this in our 90s draft episodes that, you know, we, we kind of waxed nostalgic a little bit. Maybe we're showing our age for uh, a time where more original ideas that were designed to be 27 film franchise universes were more upfront. Now, like, obviously the studio system has drifted more towards these, like, very large hugely expansive, limitless sequel-driven uh, vehicles. Everything has to have serious potential. Exactly. Yeah. And and I don't fault them for that. It makes total financial sense. And we've gotten some really cool movies out of those universes. But this is like a truly self-contained piece of, you know, adapted media that I think is really, really incredible. Um, I, I also think that, obviously, we've talked a little bit about how, like, Hollywood has some disdain for its own audience a little bit. We talked about this with Ghost in the Shell, where something gets too heady from, a, like, a the, like a piece of original material. And the product that Hollywood will adapt that into is, like, they, they take a lot of that out of it in order to make it more, quote-unquote, accessible to people. When I go back and look at something like the Sony emails, like, when they got hacked and all those emails came out, you can see in their executives, they're just like, dude, people are kind of dumb. They need to be given, like, everything spelled out for them. And so I have, like, a ton of respect for what it takes to make a project like this. Because I'm sure this was not an easy sell in the boardroom at HBO, frankly. Like, and and I don't know if anywhere but HBO would make this show. Like, I don't think Netflix is going to buy something like this that they they know is only a a one-off type thing. So, yeah, Yeah, for all those reasons, I really liked it. on that point, you just reminded me of a show that's close to number one for Netflix right now, that Inventing Anna, yeah. which we talked about a little bit in the group chat, I think is 
it's like a decent show, but they're to your point about what people think of audiences. I was again with the writer group I was talking about like last night. We were talking about how there's dialogue in Inventing Anna where they're literally like wrapping their arms around each other and be like, "What do you mean? You've been my friend for what nineteen years now? Yeah, and, you know." What's gotten into you lately? Dude, it's like, God. I, I, I wish I could find the. Per- I wish I could find the perfect words to describe how disappointing that show is to me because I I was obsessed with that case. Like I I am very drawn to, and I think this is very common in society now. Like the the idea of like digging into a con or or a scam yeah. is like very interesting. Um, Firefest got a ton of play for this with the WeWork collapse, you know, and which they reference a ton in that for sure in that show. Um, and I, I do think that the Anna Sorkin or Anna Delvey case had this extra element of like kind of pulling the kimono back on the rich and powerful a little bit, where you were suddenly realize that like you know what these people aren't like super brilliant or better than any of us they can be fooled relatively easily with the right if you know the right words and you know dress the right way and talk about the right stuff but i just thought it was handled just so ham ham fisted in that show and i found that really disappointing because i do think it's a really fascinating story um but yeah i i I couldn't i couldn't get through it so exactly what we were talking about with station 11 like you can't fault some people for being like one and out on that i was definitely kind of like i pushed through two episodes of inventing Anna and then I just couldn't get through the rest. Yeah. This show is, um, I don't know if we wanted to go through like a big synopsis of this show. Cause it has so many different, um, twists and turns, but what is, I guess, what is your like synopsis read look like Andy? Cause you've, you've, uh, you've done this once I think on our last episode. Like what are your, yeah. Um, how would you describe it now? Now that I'm describing it without trying to avoid ruining everything for you, <laughs> that was kind of one of the, the yeah. challenges of last time. Station Eleven is a story about uh, a super flu pandemic that rips through the world's population. It kills ninety nine point nine percent of the population, and it follows uh, a group of characters. It's a pretty big ensemble cast, and you see them in three different time spaces: uh, the day of the pandemic, literally like the night that the pandemic really like takes off, a year after yeah. the pandemic has like wiped everyone out. And then 20 years later. And so we get kind of like real time, like this is how the pandemic plays. You get a year later, which is kind of your like everyone emerging from their bunkers, like what's going on. And then 20 years later, which is kind of the main meat of the story, which is around like what does society look like now that we have like been affected back in the stone. Yeah, forcibly devolved from our technological peak. Um, And it follows like I would say that most of the plot hinges around – this this main girl Kirsten, um, she's a little girl who's an actor, a Shakespearean actor. When the pandemic hits, she grows up and joins a group of traveling performers called the Traveling Symphony. This all takes place in and around Chicago. People become much you know much more local in the aftermath because there's no motor vehicles and there's no planes and things like that. So they basically just travel around the perimeter of Lake Michigan to all these various like small tribal communities that have developed like not tribal but just like villages of people, communities, small right. communities, and they put on Shakespearean plays, like classical Shakespearean plays, and it's kind of I think one of the first pieces of media I've ever seen that examined the idea of in a post-apocalyptic world, like what, how how valuable art would be, which I don't think is I never really thought about that, but like, man, if if society really collapsed and you're just like farming every day and like trying to live, dude, someone like that knows how to play the violin 
or like <laughs> you know is a really good singer like that becomes right. so amazing to you almost instantly because you just don't we're so inundated with entertainment that it's hard to relate but it's it's an incredible like look at that reality like if you're the only guy on your street that knows how to crip walk oh that's yeah very oh valuable. yeah you are a huge hit just, people just watch you crip walk for like an hour absolutely um and so uh she's kind of doing her thing her group is they're put they're traveling around putting on these plays in the meantime there's this other through line of the plot and keep in mind this is all very intertwined and interconnected all the characters are in some way related to each other but at the beginning of the pandemic there's a woman who wrote this really powerful graphic novel called Station Eleven. And it, it is a it's kind of a science fiction... Did you get it? That's the name of the show. Ha-ha. Did you get that? They said the words! Um, magic answer! Magic answer! But the the graphic novel is about like uh, a group of children that encountered this astronaut uh, named Dr. Eleven. It's a science fiction uh, graphic novel. It's really, really cool. The, the art they show in the in the show makes it look awesome. And this novel, which only had like five copies printed, has been read by very few people. And one is the main character. And then she encounters this strange man named David who also – he demonstrates that he too has read this graphic novel. But for him by – like say, By like saying a line basically. Yeah. She's like, where have you heard that Yeah, because he says, uh, to the monsters, we're the monsters, which is a really cool philosophical idea to in and of itself. But she's like, where would you hear that? Um, and it turns out that David is the leader of like a radical cult that uses Station Eleven, the graphic novel, as its like holy text, and are motivated by the idea that the only liars left in the world are the people from before the pandemic, and that humanity's obsession with like preserving and getting back to the past is what you know our major flaw in this new reality. And so his overarching, I guess, cause for this cult is to effectively wipe out the past like there is no past there's only the future well the only way for us to build a better humanity is to get rid of everyone that was here before and start clean with a new slate um and that which you don't agree with his methods but like dude he's spitting he dude he the actor does an incredible job and then once you especially once you like get through his backstory and you like come to understand how he got there you're suddenly like damn dude no that makes that makes a ton of sense. And the whole thing is kind of like a love letter to Shakespeare in general. Um, you know, they're obviously they're putting on Shakespearean plays. The characters, a lot of the characters kind of mimic in some themes characters from the play Hamlet, which is kind of treated with extra reverence by the show. It's the one play the group doesn't do, but now they are going to do it. And it culminates with them going to this airport that's been abandoned and not abandoned, but it was like a bunch of people used it as their like hub of civilization and they've named the airport the museum of civilization and it is like a truly a community devoted to the idea of like preserving the past they have like hey this is a karaoke machine here's what we used it for like every piece of anything they can get from before the fall they have here yeah, and they have like solar panels, so they actually have like electricity. They have electricity. Use some of those they things. have guns. They got all kinds of cool shit, dude. And they're in an airport, so you know they got like dope security. Like honestly, kind of a lit location to to uh, ride out. And the like a small scene. regional airport, so it's like not very. You're not like right on the precipice of like other major. Like if you're if you're like taking over like JK JFK. I don't know yeah. why I forgot about it. JFK Airport or something like that, or LaGuardia. Yeah, trying to you're run like LAX would be a huge nightmare. metro area. Yeah, horrible. Yeah, 
Um, this is in Most like bad airports. I, I can't remember where they are. I mean, obviously it's in Michigan, but it's like a, one of those like very long Indian tribe names that's like very hard to pronounce. Washakiki or whatever. Yeah, it's like it's like yeah, it's like way up in the northern peninsula of Michigan. It's a it's a like. it's a regional airport, and the people basically they grounded flights from across the country at you know because of the pandemic going on and. Uh, a whole bunch of people just got stuck in this airport. And part of the theme around them is that they were all in the airport. They were trying to figure out what was going on. And at that moment, another flight landed and it word came out that the people on that flight were sick. And so everyone's kind of like, you know, when you're in the airport, you're in like the waiting area. There's those big windows. You can look out to the runway and the entire airport is stuck there and they are looking out on the runway and there's a plane full of people that they know are going to die. And they kind of come to view them as heroes for like, you know, they take one for the team. They don't come in. They don't try to get help. They just die in this can alone. And the plane just sits out there. How, how deep into spoilers do we want to get? Like is, I guess, are we assuming everyone's going to have watched? I mean, we're talking about the show. So if you're, if you're watching this show, like we're going to talk about spoilers. Yeah. So so spoiler um, alert, David was as a child was born, uh, you know, he was the, he was the, the son of a woman who is stuck in this airport. And he was raised for, you know, a pretty good amount of time in this airport around everyone else. And eventually he had this very traumatic incident where he saw a survivor come out of that plane. And that man, I I guess they, they don't really tell you definitely, but the assumption is that he has some kind of immunity to the, the flu because he's not sick. And he doesn't get anyone else sick when he comes into the airport. But he, David goes out and gets him. And is like, hey, like, look at this. I, this guy's alive. And everyone in the airport freaks out. And the security guard, who's like a TSA agent, effectively, from the airport, pulls out his Glock and just smokes this guy in front of the entire place. And Yeah, Brian Silva style. In that moment, it is, I think it's a great example of the, like, to the monsters, where the monsters. Like, everyone in that airport views the people on that plane as the monsters, right? Like, they're sick. They'll hurt us, like, if they come in here. But then one comes in, and they turn into murderers and so it's like oh shit this is for real so david ends up like lighting the plane on fire and pretending faking his own death by like hiding uh in such a way that they think he's on that plane burning to death and he runs out into the wilderness alone and he grows up to be the the cult leader david that we know today Um, very very heavy it's it's great it's so hard to like sit here and try to go through the entire synopsis of the show because it is so complicated but I think ultimately what it's about is it is about how people internalize and externalize pain in their lives, um, how they deal with unfulfilled desires, unfulfilled dreams, and what we do with the pain that we feel others have inflicted on us or pain that we feel we have inflicted on ourselves and how that impacts our relationships with others. Um, like we said, it ultimately culminates in them being at this airport. Every, all the characters eventually end up at this airport and they're going to put on a production of Hamlet and David plays Hamlet. His mom plays the queen. His like this guy, Clark, who is friends with his dad, who they had a bad relationship and like the dad and him had a bad relationship. It got really messy. He plays Claudius and there's this kind of climactic moment where, um, David pulls out a knife and it's off script. And so Clark kind of like has this monologue of like revealing to David his feelings about him and like his regrets about how he handled David and his father's relationship. And by 
allowing themselves to both like just make plain how they felt they were able to like find catharsis for the weight that both of them had been carrying and they're able to move past it one thing a lot of people had an issue with with this show is that there is ultimately i don't even know if you'd call it redemption but there's just closure for david and he kind of like is yeah he's he's fine and he goes off with his mom he gets and away scot-free happy. basically that's totally chill, except for the fact that we see a scene in this in this show where where David puts landmines on the chests of like six year old kids and turns them into fanatic zealous suicide bombers. And so I think a lot of people were like, "There's no comeuppance for something like that." And I I did a lot of thinking about that, and I did a lot of reading about that, and I think ultimately the show was not trying to talk tell a story about justice or crime and punishment. It was way more about like emotional baggage that we carry. And ultimately like Hamlet does terrible things in, in the play Hamlet as well. Like he's a horrible person, but his, we are, we as the audience are along for the ride, hoping that he will like overcome the damage that allowed him to inflict that damage onto others. And so I I think that makes sense. Ultimately it didn't bother me enough to like ruin the show or anything. I wasn't like pissed, but it is something I noticed for sure. Yeah, I I struggle with that one as well because it is one of the it's one of the biggest decisions that the writer had to make during like Definitely. creating this story. Emily St. John Mandel who wrote the novel and then I think she was also I think she helped write the show as well. I could be wrong, but uh I'm trying to look that up right now, but um it's a crazy decision because I feel like in any story where there's like a strong kind of antagonist character, one of the questions you have to ask is like what am I going to do with them at the end of the story? Are they going to learn their lesson? Are they not going to learn their lesson? What's their fate going to be? Really with any story, like if you have a major character, you're asking what is the fate of that character going to be? So you know that she asked herself that question. It's just a matter of do you think that was the right decision that this character would effectively blow up children as a terrorist and then basically be able to ride off into the sunset? I My take on that is if he had this this being kind of a post-apocalyptic world there there was a certain amount of rules and regulations but there's not a crazy amount it's it they don't work under the same judicial system that we know today it's really just more of like it's more hammurabi in nature for sure and we see kirsten stab david earlier in the series like she puts a knife to his neck she stabs him she thinks she kills him right like she thinks she committed a murder before until she comes out the next day and his body's gone so yeah i think it's hard for us to understand because we, one, live in a society built on the rule of law. Like that is like the most fundamental aspect of Western liberal democracy is like there is a rule of law here that applies to everyone. It's supposed to apply to everyone equally, yeah. but it, it applies. And we are outraged by the concept of something done without a consequence. Like someone getting away with XYZ is like our definition of injustice. Whereas in, in a world like that, like, I mean, th- there's a scene in this show where they're walking through the forest and there's like this known group called the Red Bandanas who are like, I guess they were like biker gangs, kind of like just ruffians who obviously when the- They're just straight up murderers. Yeah, when the, when the apocalypse came around, they, they got to murdering. And, you know, so the people die on a very regular basis in, in a world like this. And so maybe that's just kind of that phenomenon's effect on the rest of the story that, like, death is more of an accepted reality of life in a place like that. But it is jarring because using children as, like, using child soldiers is such a, like, that is one of the, when you're writing a fictional character, one way to easily make them, like, beyond 
Because people commit crimes for all kinds of reasons. People commit murder for all kinds of reasons. Right. But the only reason you involve children in crime is because you're evil. Like that's that is our societal right. view of it. And so they that's a very deliberate choice to like send a, a six year old into a you know a civilian environment with a landmine strapped to their chest and have them you know mantrically repeating lines from and then redeem that character later like or try to redeem the character later yeah and and on one hand like i i do look at other instances in the real world of like you know when rwanda when the rwandan genocide happened or when apartheid ended in south africa or even now like ireland and the uk there are people in those societies that did things like that you know there are ira guys that put bombs on school buses full of british school kids there are rwandans had to have you know there were neighbors that cut up neighbors with machetes and when those conflicts maybe i don't want to use the term ended because i think some people would take offense to that they especially like the irish side of things they kind of view that as an eternal quest towards irish unity but they made a conscious society wide decision that if they didn't cut off the revenge aspect somewhere it would just echo into eternity because even if like your dad like if your dad or my dad did something terrible and then justice was done to them there's some part of us that would you know wouldn't think it was fair like oh he you know didn't deserve x just because he did y that was how things were done at the time or blah 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 and so it just echoes over and over again down the lines. And so they've those societies found that it was better to just say, hey, like, we're going to do our best to find justice around, like, people that organized horrific acts and things like that. But we're not going to sit here and go through everyone's entire backstory because this was a crazy time. And so maybe that's kind of like the methodology here is that it's like David's violence and use of violence came from this place of terrible internal pain and so knowing that that pain has been at least calcified over to the point where he's a different person now and he won't go do that again maybe that's enough for the people in that world that like it's not about justice it's about making sure it doesn't happen again but yeah there's a lot of surrealist elements in this show Mm -hmm. um visually especially like there's we talked about how there's scenes where characters, particularly the writer of Station Eleven in the show, who's that the the character's name is is Miranda. I want to say her name is Miranda. Yeah. Well, Miranda has scenes where she will see the astronaut Doctor Eleven or whatever his name is. Yeah, Doctor Eleven. There's we talked about how there's a scene where there's a character giving a speech and for for no reason they make it sound like he's speaking into a megaphone even though there's no megaphone in front of him. Yeah. So they do little things like that, surrealist moments, and then like everybody's dialogue is kind of that heavy theatrical like nobody nobody talks like that in real in real life so they're not going for realism like you and i've talked about euphoria and how in euphoria the characters talk exactly how high schoolers would talk at times in this show it's the opposite like nobody talks like this so i i do think that it is a little bit of like a shakespearean story told in present day so the idea that not every consequence meets every action makes sense. Yeah, that, that's my first take on it. My second take on it is um, I think part of the theme of the show is dealing with loss and dealing with things of the past and being able to move on. There's lines in the graphic novel Station Eleven that talk about like letting things die and move on to eternity. I'm kind yeah. of paraphrasing it. Um, letting people die and move on to eternity. There's also phrases talking about like reuniting, like I found you nine times before I can find you a 10th or whatever it is. So in this story, there's a lot of um, like circular actions, like things that happen 
30 years before always make their way back around. And I think at times this show, I think it used David as a way to address that, like, the, the people in the traveling trope have basically forgiven David's sins and saying that that is gone. That is dead and gone. Like, we're yeah. moving on from There that, is no past. It's not, it's not logical because, dude, he killed, like, one of the most beloved people in the trope, right? Yeah. Or he used to be in the trope, uh, Tobias Yunke. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it, I could see where people would take offense to that plot line and just be like, that's really poorly done. But I also think people could shrug and say, you know, it's, it's part of the theme and it's yeah. part of the surrealism of the show. Yeah. I, there were so many things about the structure and the themes of this work that I loved. I thought one scene I've returned to like 10 times, I've watched it on YouTube is the scene where Miranda is interviewing for her job at the logistics company that she ends up working at. Where her boss is like, yeah. what is logistics? And she's like, getting things from one place to another. Or the way that things get from one place to another. And he's like, ah, not the way, the right way. He's like, if you want to get from here to here, the quickest path is a six-inch line. But the right path goes around your head to Des Moines, Iowa, and then back to here. In this case, Des Moines, Iowa is hypothetical. Did you understand that? And I think that that... Seems just like kind of like a funny moment where he's just being kind of eccentric. He seems like an eccentric, funny boss. But in the larger scope of the show, the idea that like the right way for a given person's life to go is not a straight line almost ever. It's the right way went all over these crazy places just to come back to this original spot that you thought was going to be a very quick jump. One character that I think has this beautiful arc is Jeevan, who starts... We see he's the first character we see in the show that's kind of like focused on. He's in a crowded theater watching a performance of King Lear and the actor playing King Lear begins having a heart attack on stage. And everyone in the theater except Jeevan thinks that it is part of the performance. And Jeevan stands up and actually takes some shit for it. Like people are like, sir, like the ushers coming to him, his girlfriend's being like, hey, you're embarrassing me, you know, sit down. And he gets up on stage and he like is the first one there and is like, we need a doctor. Is there a doctor? And the beauty of Jeevan's character who begins the show as this like person desperate to have the ability to heal someone and then comes all the way back around at the end of the show. He is at the birthing center helping women give birth to children. Yeah. Like he wasn't able to save a life and now he's helping bring new life into the world. I thought that was just a really beautiful, come full circle moment. I'll do I'll do you one more with Jeevan. Yeah. Uh Jeevan's sister in the show is a doctor. Yeah. Or was a nurse. And then his brother was like a, you know, recluse writer that had the uh that had the cane and walked around, yep. needed assistance with a cane to walk around. And by the end of the show, Jeevan kind of becomes a combination of the two yep. like he becomes a doctor who has the cane and, ha and needs the cane because to walk of, yeah, around because of the, the wolf know, attack cool. i thought that was great um i loved how every single character that has read station 11 has a completely different interpretation of station 11 and has identified dr yes. 11 as a different entity so like Mar when miranda wrote station 11 she's dr 11 and her suit, the suit that Dr. Eleven wears to maintain distance from everyone else around that character, that's Miranda using her, like, emotional unavailability 
to like maintain a safe distance from everyone around her so that she can not get hurt because her entire dude what a tragic backstory she was on a boat with her family and her entire family died in a lightning strike except for her like that's like the most horror just like instantaneously you're an orphan that's like the worst thing i've ever heard but and then when you encounter david he has a completely different interpretation and then when he when david meets kirsten kirsten's like almost like annoyed by his interpretation she's like no the kid is Dr. Eleven. He's like, I've never thought about it that way. Like, they each have this, like, very concrete idea of what it means. Um, and I think that... In Which the, is how the show plays out. The show kind of Exactly. That. It that, makes that's, you that's exactly what so I was going to come the show. away with it, was that I felt like any per, almost any person in any portion of their life, I think, could watch this show and identify with either a character or a theme and be like... Like, I think for me, the reason that that logistics speech resonated so much is that like i am effectively like where i think most people that knew me when i was 17 figured i would be like re like reasonably successful mediocre mid-30s white man but the path that i took (laughs) to get here was bizarre right like i i went through my years of like addiction issues like all this other stuff and got to where i wanted to go but the right path the path that would provide me the experiences and the lessons and all those things was very, very – probably didn't look great on paper. And I think that that's why that resonated with me so much. When I've talked to other people that have watched it, they've identified uh, so much with like – like a lot of the artists that I've talked to that have seen it are super in love with Kirsten who is this like you know born artist who finds a way even in like the worst period of human history to like maintain a passion, a burning passion for art that can like bring joy to people like – there's just so many elements of the show that I think resonate with people like that. I think that's the, a testament to the power of the art for sure. Yeah. It is one of the most meta shows I've ever seen. Yeah. There's a lot of meta-ness to it. Somebody pointed out like, dude, when you're watching the last episode and they're doing a, they're doing Hamlet, you're in a pandemic watching a show about people in a pandemic doing a play about people doing a play about a play. Yeah. Yeah, it's absurd. <laughs> it's like what, like, dude? I thought like so one of the most powerful moments of acting in the whole thing was when they get to the Museum of Civilization, and they're like, they get caught. You know, the dude with the chem suit and the shotgun is like, because they do not like outsiders at this place. They make everyone go through quarantine. They're like New Zealand, and so he's like, "Who are oh, you?" Oh, so now walls are okay. Yeah, <laughs> and so he's like. Uh, he's like, who are you? Like, what are you doing here? And they're like, oh, we're actors. You know, we're with the Traveling Symphony. And Clark, who's like a kind of a failed actor in his pre-pandemic yeah. life, is like, oh, you're actors. All right, then. Do something for me. Do a scene. And so they do like a totally without planning it or anything, David and Kirsten do a scene from Station Eleven. And I found myself almost in Clark's shoes, just like transfixed by this kind of like spontaneous yeah. display of this narrative. I came away from it being like, I want to read the graphic novel so bad. Like I want that to me be too, a thing so bad. It seems so cool to me. What little details. It's like when you're get. watching, a sh- it's like when you're watching Doug or something or like a cartoon and then the way, like the cheeseburgers look really good. And you're like, I don't even care about what I'm watching. I want, I want to be part of this. World yeah. So just I so I could have that burger. Yeah. That. It's exactly like that. Um, yeah. Krabby Patty. It was, but it was super amazing. Uh, I I liked it enough. I went ahead and I bought the novel, and then I bought her uh, Emily St. John Mandel's newest novel, uh, Glass Hotel, which won like a Goodell Award and was on Barack Obama's recommended book list for 2020. So 
see what's up. How many books does he recommend usually? I don't know. Is it as big as his music list? Let me see. Uh, book list. Okay, reading list. He did. A, he does 11, about 10 to 11 books a year. So I'm surprised he's even literate. <laughs> For 2021, he did Land of Big Numbers by T-Peng Chen, uh, which is a 10-part short series of short stories set in and out of China. Uh, Empire of Pain by Patrick Reef, which I've read that. That's about the Sackler family and... If you've read that book, it's very clear George, where George where George got his George source from. Rockall yeah, Schmidt. that's that's his another shit for George sure. Rockall Schmidt reference. Uh, when we cease to understand the world by Benjamin Laboot, uh, the fictional tale tells stories of scientists and mathematicians throughout history who shaped the world through their findings. Under the white sky, the nature the nature of the future, things we lost in the water, leave the world behind. Claire and the sun, which. You know, spoiler, we will be doing an episode on the sweetness in the water and intimacies. So that's cool. I mean, you know, every every former president's got their, their little content they put out. Some some have an app. Some guy's got a book list. Nice. A nap. <laughs> some guys paint, some guys read, some guys launch social media apps. Dude, I did see. and That we're all on. This is not a political statement, yeah. but I did see this kid yesterday on TikTok that... So because that app came out, every username is available. Like, no, you know, it's brand new. So like every username is... Man, I didn't even think about that. And so he went and got Walmart immediately and oh, made his, so his logo, the Walmart logo. His you know whole page looks like Walmart. And then he started getting like tens of thousands of followers because a lot of people on this app are like, you know, older, you know, middle America type people. And they, they like Walmart and that's fine. And he made this post that was like... uh we at Walmart are so proud to partner with Planned Parenthood to offer a free abortion up to one year after a child's birth to anyone who shops at blah, blah, blah. Dude, it is the most commented post on the entire app by a factor of 10. And like half the comments – and don't get me wrong. Like a good portion of the comments are like, haha, You know what I mean? Like LOL or whatever. But dude, there are yeah. tons of just like I will never be shopping at Walmart again. And Walmart had to put out a statement. They've been getting so many calls from people like pissed about this free abortion offer they're making. I was like, dude, children are savage. I would have never thought to do that when I was in high school. I wasn't nearly <laughs> like mischievous. I just enough. wish I had thought about that just to get my follower count up and then change it back to like the real. Bro, me that used have, to like, be the move, dude. Do you remember when people would do that? Like make a funny Facebook page that was like, uh, I love tacos, the Facebook page. And people would just like concepts like that when Facebook first came out. Yeah. And then those guys, all of them would get like up to 200,000 followers or likers on that page. And then they'd sell it to somebody who would just run spam ads into everyone's news feed. And they would make like a pretty yeah. bundle and then go on and do it again. It was crazy. <laughs> It never, it never occurred to me, man. I just don't think that way. I'm not a schemer, but I'm an artist. Sorry, bro. I have integrity. I'm not a sellout. Like Kristen, I'm an artist. <laughs> uh, I would never strap a bomb to a child like you. Dude, would. can we talk about like you mentioned him earlier? But can we talk about just the tragedy that is Frank, Jeevan's brother? Oh, he's a goat character. He's though. awesome. Gosh. Like I knew I was gonna love him from the moment that. He he opens the closet door and Kirst, little Kirsten's in there reading Station Eleven and he just like goes in the closet and sits down next to her and he's like, you know, tell me about the book. Like he engages with her and like that kind of gets her to open up a little bit, which is right after the scene that broke my heart in this show first, which was when she finally gets a text from her mom and dad and it's the, the morgue telling him telling her that they have the bodies, which was just like, oh my god, dude. Yeah. But dude, the scene 
where they're all in the living room. They're putting on, you know, they're putting on a play, which is, you know, highly symbolic of of things yeah. to come. And they turn around and there's someone else in the apartment with them. And it's that dude bundled up, ski mask, huge hunting knife. And they're like, hey, dude, like, it's cool. It's safe here. We have food. You can hang out. And he's like, you need to leave this apartment. I need it. And you can just hear the desperation in his voice. Like, he doesn't – he's not some psycho. Like, he's not He's not going to kill them because he's a bad he's person. He's fighting to survive. Yeah. He thinks he has to do this to, to not die. And you're just like, oh, my god, dude. And then, yeah, you have to watch Frank die. It's fucking rough. Like – and I thought Jeevan yeah. was going to die too. Like, when he got attacked by the wolf, which, you know, yeah. another to the monsters were the monsters moment. But when he got attacked by the wolf, I was like, no, not Jeevan. Anyone but Jeevan. They just have like the off-screen screaming, and it's like super realistic. Yeah, it's crazy. But dude. Um, one quick note on Frank, real quick. One of the lines that kind of talks about the theme the most is this line where it's Frank and Kristen, and Frank is asking about Station Eleven, and basically he says, "How does it end?" And she's like, "Well, it's not really clear." Like, and she, I, I, God, I wish I had the exact line in front of me, but she basically is like, "They don't make it very clear." Like, it's, and it kind of speaks to this station 11 like it's it's a little bit up in the air as to like the meaning and things you know like i think about how the show ends with Kristen and jeevan saying goodbye and he he says some note about like when i found you 20 years ago i was just trying to trying to get a girl home or something like that and it's kind of like a double meaning because like yes that's true 20 years ago and then it was true then when she, when he was getting Kristen back to the to the traveling symphony and saying goodbye to her and stuff it just is great man like a lot of deeper meaning in this show i i really feel like this show has so many deeper themes and elements i i'm not one who like i don't like to see a show more than once like i'm probably never going to go back and rewatch like house of cards i'm probably never going to go back and rewatch like breaking bad but this show has so much depth to it that i could see myself like you said revisiting it like every 10 years yeah. and watching it I really it's could. it's not going to be in my like so like I I rewatch The Wire and The Sopranos like once every other year probably like probably in rotating order so like Sopranos Wire Sopranos Wire Sopranos Wire but yeah I agree with you I think I'm gonna probably end up watching this multiple times in my life it's something that I feel like can you will t- I will take different messages from at different points in my life like I was already getting hit pretty hard by like the elements of like what it means like there's there's messages in this show about bringing new life into the world and what it means to be a parent and what it means to be a father, like how that relationship can work for good and for ill. And I was already like kind of being hit by that. I I know that the next time I watch this show with my son being born, it's going to be very, that's going to color so much of my experience with it. But I, I think I was just blown away by a show that I knew almost nothing about and I expected it to be a good television show, and I was really came away from it being like that was like a that really shows that television can be art, like it really can be. Like that was a that was moving on an existential level, on an intellectual level, on an emotional level, and I think it's hard to hit all those, especially when you're trying to write for TV, because it has to be. You know, like we said at the beginning, there's a there's a desire for a lot more interconnectedness, a lot more. Uh, open avenues to plug in you know they can't make uh they're not going to make kirsten action figures they're not going to make a david funko pop if they do want to do merch go ahead and fire off that that station 11 graphic novel my dude i'll snap that right up but for the most part it's a self-contained item that you exist with while you're watching it 
and that's the end of it. You don't get any more. But it was just, it was beautifully done. I, I, I watched it all in one go, and I went to bed at 4 o'clock in the morning on a, on a weekday night, which is painful for me. I'm old now. I need my sleep, but it was worth it. It was worth it. It is a show where you could do that. Um, even though Even though it has, it generally is at a pretty slow pace the entire time. Um, but somehow it's pretty bingeable. Um, yeah. I'm going to put this at like jumping straight into the ratings. I, I kind of had this at a strong, like 9.7, yeah. 9.8. I mean, it is right towards the top. It is, but it's funny. It's, it's a show that rarely do I see a show that I rake that highly and think so highly of that. I don't, that, that I will acknowledge that not everybody would like, um, in fact, I know a lot of people that probably would not like it just because it is a slow enough burn and not enough. I feel like enough happens, but I could see where somebody feels like there's a missing element, right? Like it feels, for example, like when it's like episode three or four, when you meet the prophet and like the, the children with the bomb strapped to them, you think that the show's going to start having like a massive increase in pacing and stuff and action for lack of a better word, but it doesn't really happen like that. And I could see where that would disappoint some folks, but that's not really what the show ever intends to do or tries to do. When they do have action scenes, like in the, the scene where Kirsten ends up getting poisoned, like when they're in the forest and they get ambushed, I was almost like, whoa, dude. Like when they start throwing knives and stuff, I was like, it, not that it's out of place. It's just like the show thus far has not been contain that much of that and it's well done i think it's well they don't use they don't overuse violence but they don't have so little of it that it's unrealistic like you'd be like i feel like if you didn't have any violence in this show you'd end up being like well like in a post-apocalyptic world with like no real law and order like wouldn't there be some degree of like predators like wouldn't there be people trying to take advantage of other people and so i feel like they, they struck a good balance there but yeah agreed so yeah i think it's super well done i mean again there's there are shows out there that I've watched that I would rate as high, but I just but I think more people could get behind. I I don't I w- I would not fault somebody for giving it a try and then being like, no, it just wasn't for me. Sure, yeah, I've I've actually tried to be like kind of prescriptive with who I've recommended this show to. Um, I wouldn't just tell anyone to watch this because I I know people that like this just wouldn't be their thing. For those that that it is up your alley, and I think you you called out a good group, which is like people that are into like to writing. I think is a great audience for this because it is a masterclass on how to do something that a lot of movies do. The number of like attempted high concept films, like high minded, like heady films that people try, where it's like a hundred characters and it all weaves together by the end. That's a really hard task to accomplish with uh, a real sense of efficacy and efficiency as far as just like it doesn't just bloat um i love the movie cloud atlas but it is not for everyone because it is just so long and so many threads cloud assless dude it is it's not for everyone i i readily admit that but this is done highly effectively i think that doing it as a series was an incredibly good idea i think you've called this out before that like trying to make some stories into movies is not a good idea and i think this would have been it would have been a tragedy if this had been made into like a two-hour movie instead of or like a four-season show no exactly oh yeah you could have done this bad almost any other way this was done perfectly um i'm right there with you it's like above a 9.5 like a nine seven nine eight. it's i don't even know what genre i mean i don't watch any i don't really watch like 
post-apocalyptic stuff, so I don't know if it goes into that genre or if this is just like a general drama, in which case, I mean, I think it hangs with the best dramatic TV shows I've ever seen, so... I would almost consider it like a Shakespearean drama with the backdrop being a post-apocalyptic world. Because I, I, I saw some reviews that are that basically start out the first line almost defending it and being like, it's not just another pandemic show. It's like, you don't even have to say that. Like, in my opinion, I, I almost don't even link the fact that, like, we just went through a pandemic in this show. Because when I think of a pandemic show, I think about um, even, like, World War Z is more of a pandemic story than, like, yeah. this you know, or what, what's the contagion? Like contagion is a pandemic story. This show has almost nothing to do with a pandemic. It just happens to be the backdrop of the world, right? Like they could have chosen any number of reasons why these, fo- it, dude, it could have been about a commune, right? Like it didn't have to be about the end of the world. Like it, it, it honestly barely touches on the fact that there was a disease. It just kind of like shows things that happened right before it and then it shows like a little bit of panic of the pandemic and then it flashes forward 30 years yeah i liked how they handled kind of showing the before the pandemic parts i thought the grocery store scene was incredibly well done both from the shots of all the products like they they found like the world's cleanest most organized perfect grocery store to take you know uh set photography of so it looks amazing but then the conversation he has with the guy at the checkout is really eerie uh hey should i leave or should i what is like, yeah, like hey what did he, he say goes, he go he looks because he's got like four carts full of stuff and he goes is that for like that thing that's happening and he goes yeah and he goes should i like leave and then he goes and then he looks at his hat for a minute and then he looks back and he goes you should go home or no actually the guy says should i like go somewhere and then the guy says and he says yeah. you should go home and then when they go out in the parking yeah. lot, you see the guy just like – he's the only employee in this grocery store. He just pieces out. He just doesn't even have the key to lock up. He just leaves. He's like, yeah, fuck that, Yeah, which is good. And then we're immediately – we go from that, which is like this kind of like wholesome but yet foreboding reaction to seeing that car hit the telephone pole. And there's the sick guy in the car and he's like, don't get out of the car, man. I'm serious. Don't open that door. There's a kid out here. You're like, damn, dude. This shit got real really quick. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you see that when it does show the pandemic, it does show the interesting effect of, like, when stuff hits the fan, everybody gets really it's, – it's it creates a lot of surrealism. Like, another – it has nothing to do with pandemics per se, but, like, anytime like, a fire alarm goes off in real life, like, everybody doesn't really know. They don't want to be the idiot that, like, sprints for the door, which is what you probably should do, or at least, like, go to the exit, whereas most people, like – keep doing what they're doing or like nonchalantly get up and go to the exit. Like there's a lot of like in moments of panic, there's a lot of mixed reactions of like people taking it super seriously, people that are taking it a little bit seriously or trying to figure out what to do. And then people who don't care at all. And they do a good job of showing all different types of people in terms of like how much they care that there's something super serious happening around. It's, it's fascinating. The one thing I will say about the experience of going through a pandemic and then watching this is that it's so strange to watch a pandemic developing knowing that it's going to be incredibly serious. Like you can see in the characters, like the the people they interact with, that some people are like, oh, you know, in a couple of days, this is going to blow over or whatever. Like we're going to be back at this conference in like a couple hours or whenever they handle this or whatever it is. Since we as the audience know that the pandemic is going to get really serious, really bad and kill almost everyone. 
those comments are in a certain light. Whereas in like the real world, we were all just like, I don't know how bad this is going to get. It could be not that bad. It could get really, really serious. Like there was always this like level of like unknowing about the process and to the dichotomy between those two was really interesting to see. I think that while, while, while I did call out that I think some people probably have like pandemic fatigue as far as just like not wanting to ingest any more content or even talk about the pandemic anymore. I think that having us having all gone through the experience of living through a pandemic will have an effect on your viewing of this show in a good way. I think that it it adds to that, uh, that experience. You want to talk the power of the dog real quick? Cause I know we both watched it. Dude, how Um, good is Benedict Cumberbatch at everything? He's so good. We were talking about the chat, how like, in most of his movies, he plays just, like, either a grumpy guy or, like, kind of a douche, like, in every single film. He, he, dude, he does it, but he does it really well. Like, even even his, like, more lighthearted roles, like Doctor Strange, like, Doctor Strange is kind of a douche, yeah. you know? And in this in this movie, um, Power of the Dog, he plays, like, probably one of his best roles. Like, and I think that really defines this movie is... Oh yeah. I mean, he's the he. First of all, he's not only is he like the main character, but he's also the antagonist. And I've said this before on this podcast that I think antagonists drive stories, like because they kind of push people to the boundaries, and he he's the one who kind of pushes the mold, and he's the reason there's a problem. And uh, he takes center stage and does an incredible thing with it. His character is just flamed. Philip or Phil is that his name in the show? Uh, yeah, Phil. Yeah. So. Uh, brief synopsis of power of the dog um basically about two brothers that are that are montana ranchers or cowboys basically and at the beginning of the film one of the brothers named george played by jesse plemons who if you don't know the name you'd recognize him meets a woman named rose played by kirsten dunce they get married the other brother of jesse plemons which is phil played by benedict cumberbatch gets super jealous he's kind of like a macho he's a more macho rancher i wouldn't even say macho i think he's just kind of like i heard somebody call it like definitive toxic masculinity and like and i think that's kind of accurate like i i hate throwing around that term loosely but like he kind of is just like the typical like way too macho guy who's mean to everybody right um yeah phil played by benedict cumberbatch basically doesn't like that somebody has wedged relationship between him and his brother, who's like the only one who understands him. So he kind of becomes an enemy of Rose, again, played by Kirsten Dunst. And then Rose's younger son comes and moves in with them. His name is Peter. And at first, Peter and Phil are kind of at odds. And then I won't go through the entire like B plot, but basically they start to have a, they start to like start seeing eye to eye and Phil kind of takes Peter under his wing a little bit. Basically you find out, um, it's they do a good job of foreshadowing it without being crazy heavy-handed but basically you figure out that the reason that phil is so macho is because he like most like overly macho annoying guys like he's compensating for something and what he's compensating for is that this man that he had that he had a huge reverence for that was kind of like his um mentor his name is bronco what's bronco's last name henry bronco henry um is that basically he had either a fling or a relationship with him like basically figure out that benedict Cumberbatch is closeted homosexual in this extremely again it's like turn of the century montana like a a community and a culture that would a thousand percent not be okay with that um so he's kind of hiding that um and and i do want to get into that later hiding it is kind of a very it's almost like a too generic way of putting it but yeah um 
it truly is, you know, when, when I say like one thing led to another, like I truly mean one thing led to another. It happens very quickly, but um, you basically figure out that Peter is plotting against Phil because he doesn't like how Phil is treating his, his, um, his new wife, his mom. Uh, yeah. Hey, well, yeah, his, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Peter, the, the, the son of Rose, does not like how Phil is treating Rose, who is married to Phil's brother, right? Mm-hmm. So um, Peter sees a cut on Phil's hand and has heard about infections that can happen from dead cattle and how it creates um, – is it anthrax? Yeah, it is anthrax. Is what he says? Nature's perfect it's chemical crazy. weapon. Yeah, and uh, what he does is um, Phil gets upset with Rose for getting rid of some of his hides – so Peter goes out and finds a dead cow and gets its hide and gives it to Phil as a gift, knowing that it might have anthrax on it. Phil then cleans the hide using his you know, cut hand, and then eventually Phil gets sick and dies. Um, so it's like a exacting a little bit of revenge or getting rid of Peter. Now, in a lot of that, there's a ton of, like Andy said, subtext and unspoken stuff, and with that, just incredible acting, where do we want to start with all of that, man? I'll say that the ending of this movie I loved so much. So I think it's Peter skips the funeral and then reads from the Book of Psalms and reads the verse that has the power of the power of the dog. The in power it. of the dog in it. It's like Psalms something uh, twenty two twenty is what I think what it says here. Um, I thought that first of all, getting Benedict Cumberbatch to play this role was amazing. I also thought that getting Jesse Plemons in this movie was a really good casting choice as well. He plays George. Ultimately, I think that this is a an incredibly human story. Like, it is a story of, like, tension, revenge, betrayal, but it's grounded in, one, an environment where, like, you don't feel like anyone's coming to the rescue. Like, all the actions that are taken, you're you, you kind of feel the whole time like, yeah, like this is they're just kind of out here in the middle of nowhere. So like this can all occur and all the actions felt very justified. You come away from it. Not necessary. I didn't feel like any like I didn't feel like Phil, even though he's the antagonist and he does a lot of like underhanded shit. I felt like they established his character well enough to where I felt like I, I could wrap my head around all his motivations. And especially once yeah. you kind of got the, like the, him being on the download piece, you're kind of like, okay, like a lot of this makes sense. It's a, it's, it's incredibly tight. It's a very, it's an incredibly human centered drama that I thought was incredibly well done. And then what takes it over the top is you get a guy like Cumberbatch to come in and deliver a performance like he did. Um, I felt very similar about the imitation game and that it was like, a movie that could have been like pretty good, and then they got Benedict Cumberbatch to come in and just give this banger performance, and that's what put it into like Oscar territory. And that's how I felt about Power of the Dog. He's so good. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, I, they do a good job of creating just the right amount of sympathy for Phil because when they first introduce Phil, he's such a piece of shit. Like, yeah, the beginning of the film when they go into um, Rose and Peter's restaurant is how they meet Rose and Peter, and in front of. Peter like takes the flower and basically like, Oh cute. Did you make these? Like he basically has these like paper roses that he's put on the table and they look great. And Peter's like kind of proud of them. And is like, yeah, like you can tell that he peeks up that these guys taking interest in them. And he just kind of like takes it and like lights it on fire in front of him and just stares at him and basically like laughs in his face. Just like, God, what a, what a horrible human. Yeah, being. dude, um, he's, he is intense. And also like, I thought Kirsten Dunst did a good job, like capturing the, like 
the 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 character of Rose is its own set of complexities. Like she's got this horrible drinking problem, which you do see her kind of redeem herself at the end. She's they show her as like a now sober human being by the end of this movie. But great casting choices all around. I think and and maybe this is just because of like who I talked to about this movie, but I felt like some people saw this like on their, you know, on Netflix or whatever and didn't watch it because they don't like cowboy movies, you know? And I think that people are doing themselves a disservice by by not checking it out for that reason. I think that it is a it's definitely takes place in that setting, but I didn't feel like this was necessarily like you're not you're not signing up to watch the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did you know that Jesse Plemons went to Texas Tech? Did he really? Or he went to a um says graduated from the Texas Tech Independent School District, a distance learning program. Huh. So I guess he went to like online. Yeah, it seems like he was crazy. an actor like really, really young. So Plemons was born yeah, in I think Dallas, he was Texas. The guy in, um, dude, he's from Mart, dude. He was he was raised in Mart. Do you know where that is? I think I've passed. It's it. in, it's near Waco. It's got like two thousand people in it. When you when you refer to something as like, oh, it's near Waco, you know it's yeah. small. So it, he he was the he was the the older kid in like Mike. Bro, he's only a year older than us. In 2007, Plemons graduated from Texas Tech University Independent School District, a distance learning program which allowed him to earn his high school diploma. He attended schools in Mart, playing football in middle school, junior school, and at Mart High School until he received more acting jobs and shifted to the online program. So, yeah, dude, he got it. he was in a Coca-Cola commercial at three and a half years old. So this dude was early to the game. He was in Varsity Blues, which which is pretty cool like to be in varsity blues and then like a few years later to be on your high school football team yeah and dude he's done all the he's been in all the great uh he's he's been in all the great uh texas high school pieces of media he was in varsity blues and friday night lights so like this dude clearly oh yeah he was he was matt saracen's best friend Uh uh-huh yeah landry dude and then i i i really became aware of him on break in Breaking Bad, I thought he, he got to back up. Sorry, I I be, really became aware of him yeah. when he did Breaking Bad. I thought he was just like a sinister presence in that show. I don't even remember him on Breaking Bad. Yeah, he was like um he was like Mike the Cleaner's number two guy, who is like got it. Yeah, he he's put together a solid little career. But anyways, um back to Phil, <laughs> back to Power of the Dog. I I listened to a critic that said something to the effect of they didn't like it. They didn't like the movie because they thought that Benedict Cumberbatch's character brought they they thought it brought sympathy to two things basically like anti LGBTQ behavior sure. and then also sympathy to um, toxic masculinity and I think that there's there's several components that are wrong with that wording is first of all if you want to have candid conversation about social topics in your stories you can't like straw man sides and you can't whitewash sides so that you're presenting this like beautiful picture of how the, how you think the world should work like dude this takes place in turn of the century man camps in montana like of course these people are not going to have the same views in the world that like you a journalist in the year 2020 well, and and i'll even in manhattan i'll does. even like piggyback off that to say that like you can look at it like okay they're making this you know gay man into a bad person and that's not okay but i think what's important about the character and actually puts it more on the right side of that equation in my opinion is that i felt like that aspect of his character was less about like he's gay and he's bad and more about like this is what the society's attitudes historical attitudes towards lgbtq people 
how that manifests in someone who is going through the process of navigating society as a closeted gay person. And right. Right. I think that because of that, it's, it's not a critique of gay people because of his behavior. It's more of a look at, look at the turmoil that was caused in this man's life. Look what he became as a result of, you know, the internal struggle caused around his inability to just live the life he wanted to. So I feel like that's more probably they would, if I went to these people that had a problem with that, they would probably think that's a good, a good message to send, right? That like, Hey, like there are, there are consequences for society when we, when we have that attitude towards gay people and it can be exhibited yeah. here at a time when that was the case. If you're going to, if, if we want to make it seem like everyone who has an, a, a, like an issue around masculinity is like a purely two dimensional bad person, that's going to alienate everyone who we would prefer to work on those problems. Like I too find it very annoying when I'm like on YouTube and there's like these channels that have like, 500,000 subscribers that are just like alpha male news. All right, bros. Let me tell you why women need to get back in the kitchen. Like, yeah, I find that annoying (laughs) too, but like those people are never going to like come around or like be open to the other, to any other way of living. If they're just, if someone is sitting at the New York times being like, you know, Hey, uh, you made this person who has masculinity issues seem like a human being. I don't like that. I would prefer they be Hitler. Like that's, that's not a good position for society right. either. So yeah, I agree with you on both those points for sure. I'm not trying to point out any single like, you know, critique person. Name or, them. Uh, Name like, them. Maybe... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I know. I literally don't know. Uh, it, but I, I would not be surprised if like we, like we just talked about a show that had a antagonist that did something a hell of a lot worse than be mean to people. Right? Sure. Like Benedict Cumberbatch was like super mean to people. David from Station Eleven was like literally killing an actual and, like, terrorist forcing them to be yeah. like suicide bombers. <laughs> an actual yeah. terrorist and like i bet there are people that would like look at that show station 11 and think to themselves like wow they really did a good job of like showing the background of this character and making them like a very complex character like yeah i didn't agree with them but they were like complex but they would also turn around and be like man i really hated how they portrayed a, a lgbtq person and benedict Cumberbatch. like dude you can't like do we want complex characters or do we not want complex characters? Like sometimes it's refreshing to have somebody that you agree with or that you see their, like you have a understand their worldview or you agree with their worldview and they're, they're horrible people. For sure. Sometimes you need that. And I get the reflexive defensiveness. Like there are, yes, I do too. There are just so many movies where like the gay person is just awful or a caricature or, you know, or their their gayness is confined to a section of the film so small it can be easily edited out for this when they ship the movie to China. Like, I understand. I really do. I think that in a movie like Power of the Dog, you're not supposed to walk up to the theater and be like, hmm, should we see uh, Scream 5 or Power of the Dog? Like, that's not the crowd they're going for. They're, they are assuming a more thoughtful intake of this film. It's going to tackle issues that are a little more complex than that. I think it shows respect mm-hmm. for the audience that they attempted to to you know navigate the complexities of a character that has attributes that allow for sympathy and empathy and also attributes that allow for us to say like oh I recognize those from real life too and they're they're negative. So yeah, it's it's a real human being. It's a real human being. There are bad gay people. There are good gay people. Like it's it's important yeah. that they both exist. 
Now, if every movie, if every movie for the next ten years has a gay guy that's a sociopath in it, we might have an issue. Like, yeah, we might need to address that. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> that's... yeah. I I think that this the way that they frame this story is done so well, where the first. 30 40 minutes of the film is basically spent setting up the characters and making Bennett like showing how bad of a person Phil is. And then the it, I almost thought at the beginning of the film that it was going to turn into Phil is driven to madness and does something crazy. That's what I that's where I yeah. thought they were going with. Yeah, it, right? it did seem a little and bit then like that. Instead of continuing to show the bad side of Phil, they kind of do the opposite and they kind of give him. I wouldn't even say redemption qualities, but they show you why he is the way yeah. he is. Like it really goes back to like, you know, the trope of like, there's a mean animal, like in a cartoon, there's a mean growling animal that's like going to attack you. And then somebody walks up to the animal and is like, it's not mad. And then it lifts up the paw and it's got like a splinter in the paw yep. and like, it's just hurt. And like paws pulls it out. Like that's what I think they were going for with Phil where it's, he's not a, total bastard he's just extremely scorned and hurt by the world he grew up in and we start to learn that and that totally changes the narrative to one of like what is what horrible thing is phil gonna do versus what horrible thing might happen to phil that doesn't like redeem this whole story because that towards the end you like kind of want the whole thing to be redeemed but for reasons that are totally understandable peter does peter's kind of the antithesis of benedict cumberbatch right like where where benedict cumberbatch is like very hard and crusty on the outside he has a softer side whereas peter has softer and like more artsy on the outside he is kind of more calculated and observant on the inside like yeah. it's interesting how they how they pulled that off dude i'm i'm just looking at this now i didn't know that uh one jesse plemons and kirsten dunce are married and two they're both nominated for the weird. oscars this year together so how cool is that? Wow. That, that, hit, that him, yeah. And also, I'll say this, under his upcoming projects, he's in a movie where it's a Western thriller called Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's going to be him and Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone, and Robert De Niro, and it's directed by Martin Scorsese. That sounds uh, like a banger. Like a slappy. Yeah. Sounds like a slappy bag. That is wearing, insane, wearing. dude. Cool. Well, yeah, man. Uh, Jesse Plemons has two kids and was got married in 2016. I, I always think of him as like so much younger than he is, but yeah, he's he's, he's like a full fledged. He's adult. he's pretty much my. I mean, he's like a he's like yeah, like nine months older than me. Yeah, he's 33. I'm yeah. gonna be 33 in July. So that's wild. That's really wild. Two more crazy things that I picked out from this this story that I thought were really interesting. Uh, like little things that I was like, ooh, that was a that was a fire line, and I feel like there's more fire lines in this in this screenplay. I feel like I need to go back and watch all the little hints and things they give you. One was I don't know if you caught this, but when they're playing tennis outside and Peter is like flailing around and somebody's like calling out the score, he's like he says something to the effect of like, no need to count the score, like I I can remember it or something like yeah. that. And I was like, oh, that that shows like, dude, you don't really think he cares about tennis. But then he's like, you think I'm not paying attention, but I'm paying attention. And that play, obviously, that like is basically how the movie's like resolution happens is like he's paying attention to all like the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch has a cut on his hand. He's paying attention to like the whole thing about the anthrax. Yeah, he's more Machiavellian than they give him credit for, dude. Um, 
And then the second thing I wanted to point out, and this is pretty obvious, but um, there's three people that saw the power of the dog. There's only three people in the entire world that saw the, the dog on the mountain. It's Benedict Cumberbatch. I keep calling I should call him Phil. Phil, Bronco, Henry, and Peter. Yeah. Like the three guys who basically the world did not understand. Um, and I don't think it's very... It imp- it's implicit that Peter might be gay, but they don't like fully tell you that. Um, he does stick the... He does stick the cigarette in Phil's mouth. But I think that was more of like a power move than anything, honestly. <laughs> like, it could have been a power. Um, but anyways, uh, I just thought that was interesting how, like, you go back to, like, the the Bible verse about, like, triumphing over the power of the dog, which is kind of like power triumphing over, like, society and authority. Like, the three people that who's, like, were under the foot of society were the three people that they, that society didn't understand right mm-hmm. were those three people they're the only ones who saw the the dog in the in the mountains so i thought that was really good uh symbolism it was awesome it's it's a uh, i thought d- directorially i thought that uh jane compion did an amazing job with this she doesn't have like a super crazy long history um i mean she's been directing for a long time but nothing that like i think most people would have seen uh and this is the first movie that she's ever yeah. uh, no it's the second movie she's ever written directed uh, and produced all, uh, by, like as as the main person herself, and I thought she did an incredible job. This movie has already been nominated for two hundred and sixty five awards, so huge win for Netflix. There, I think we've started to see this. Uh, the first one I remember like this was when Amazon Films did Manchester by the Sea a few years ago. I was like, this is a very different movie than I would expect a streaming service to go out and get you know like they tend to go after like very current event driven documentary features or that something very digestible like that they love that kind of content or or just like true masterpieces like bright featuring will smith um but this is uh this and and a movie like manchester spicy these are like real hard-hitting dramas that you would typically you know you expect to see come oscar season and it's crazy. I, I think that, uh, you know, a couple of years ago we were kind of having the debate. Uh, I know Scorsese weighed in about like whether or not something that doesn't show in a theater should be, you know, considered for award season. And now I think we're getting to a point where that would be crazy. You know, like so many of these like really incredibly well done projects uh, are coming out via these streaming services and it seems like it's the direction things are going in. So I love yeah. uh, that that artists have more options. I love the idea that you know, you can if you can get a film made, then you can go shop it to like all these different distribution channels that'll pay you a ton of money. Um, whereas like before, it felt like you know like Sony and like some of these other huge studios really had a vice grip on what got to get made. So I think it's really cool. It's really awesome. It's interesting. I think that net when I think of Netflix originals, I I or things that kind of air on Netflix, I I think more in line of like. They feel more blockbustery. I think of um, Stranger Things sure. as far as television shows go. I think of what is the Red Notice or whatever yeah. the, the movie that just came out with like the like, Rock the and most stuff. Like, I think of that film. kind of stuff. Yeah, and like they'll they'll they might make something that's like pretty exciting that we would be excited for. But again, it feels a little bit more formulaic. Whereas I feel like when you go through Amazon's catalog, they have the Amazon Studios. They take more artistic liberty. It feels a little bit more indie. It feels a little bit more sure. like self-regulated and it feels um artistic driven like they have a ton of these like like uh linear plot line movie like dramas that 
have like a little bit of like dark comedy element to them like not that dark not that power of the dog follows anything i just described but i always feel like amazon's catalog of original content is a little bit more weighty sure. than whereas i feel like netflix is a little bit more like for the masses and so it's a little bit surprising when, when netflix does make something that i think has real artistic merit i don't feel like they put it front and center as much they make a huge deal about something like red notice or seven underground or you know those kind of movies but like I don't I don't know that many people that saw. Do you ever see Maniac with Jonah Hill and Jonah Hill and Emma yeah. Stone? Dude, that's really it's a really it's good super show. good. And yeah, I don't nice feel like it. that many people saw it. I thought that was amazing. Black Mirror Bondersnatch, which was crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, the like interactive that will mess you up. Yeah, super that will super very much nuts. Mess you up. Um, I hope they do something like that they again. They should. I think that was so interesting, especially if they can get into like VR and things like that. You could do some really incredible stuff if you shoot. <laughs> Wrong choice. What does he say? Wrong choice, mate. Yeah, <laughs> it's like that fall off the, that you, yeah, you fall off the balcony. Dude, yeah. I died there like three times. Um, I Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think certainly like the content that Netflix puts front and center tends to be this like very digestible for the masses type stuff. Whereas Amazon is definitely trying to position itself. I think Amazon wants to compete with, with HBO. I think that's who they, they are going after. And that's why, like, you know, the Lord of the Rings show, a billion-dollar Lord of the Rings show, that's a, that's an, that'd be an HBO special. You know what I mean? That's, like, right up HBO's alley, and now it's Amazon's. So we're going to see how they make that, which I'm very excited for. Rings of, second age Lord of the Rings stuff is very, very cool. So Yeah, and then we got, like, Paramount coming out with some University of Fuego at Yellowstone type stuff. Yeah. And- in 1883 and all that, Dude, we have we have a plethora of options these it's, days. It's man. easy to complain about, you know, oh, music sucks. They don't make good movies anymore. But man, it's it's mostly just because you have to wade through a lot to find because you know there's there there isn't 20 channels anymore. But we do live in like a golden era of entertainment. It is you could take lots of shows and movies made now and take them back to the 90s and people would not even fathom what was happening it would be earth shattering culture would be changed the actors would be elected to high office like i think right if you if you put breaking bad on tv in 1999 brian cranston might be president <laughs> like yeah for sure i mean dude think about like i mean I, I was about to say the West Wing, but the West Wing actually still holds oh, up. Oh, West Wing, so, it bangs so hard it's crazy that like they they haven't done more shows of that kind of I'm I'm so glad like, tried to have that level of highbrow quality. Agreed. I I feel like it's much harder to make a show about politics now than it was then. Like you pretty much have to pick a team to make that show about, and so it'd be hated by one side or the other. The president in West Wing walks a really, which is it's interesting. That's how all presidents used to be in movies and TV. They were all very like pro-military, like fiscally conservative, but like really open-minded and like you know like accepting personal per- like progressive on that side of things wanting to help people but needing to be responsible like they walked the line so well and that was kind of our like dream president and now it seems like we've we've you know polarized so much that that's that's more difficult to do from a narrative perspective but i'm so glad they held strong to their vision for that show ever since i heard rob lowe tell the story about them playing the pilot for the executives at the tv station and they were like this is really great. Um, the only thing is at the end of – for those who haven't seen the, t- the pilot of West Wing, it revolves around a uh, an immigration crisis where there are refugees from Cuba stuck on a boat in the Gulf of Mexico and there's like a storm. And eventually the president makes the call oh, to, yeah. to go save the people. Like 
hey, you know what? Like human lives before again, like walking this fine line, right? Of like, of like kind of like progressive ideals, but conservative practicality. Like, it's like go, you know, go get these people and save them. And the execs were like, this is great. One change though, you, you, the 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 characters should be on the boat that goes and saves them. And they're like, you want us to write this to where the president of the United States and his immediate like executive staff go put on life vests and save refugees in the Gulf of Mexico. And they're like, yeah, I mean, you can't just like tell people to go do it. There has to be some action. They were just like, they had like, they really held strong uh, to the idea that they were going to make this uh, realistic. And I'm glad they did because that would have ruined the entire show. If they started making it like, oh, 100%. If, if I see a scene of this show where the president has a gun, I'm going to be really upset. And so it's, I'm glad that they, well, that's when you get shows like the, like what's the call, like the, uh, designated survivor. Oh yeah, like dude. That, that's like, that show. It's is like, outrageous. dude, it's like pretty good. But then they dude, I'm like designated survivor. There's like scenes and plot lines that are like written almost as well as West Wing. We're like, dude, this is really yeah, good. Yeah. Maybe not the dialogue. Agreed. Cause it's, he's not Sorkin, but it's like, they're like, this is good. And then all of a sudden it's like car chase. And it's like, what the Yeah, f- dude. Like, what are it would, we doing It would be here? the most, like, like so designated bad. survivor would be, like, the most dramatic presidency in the history of our country by a factor of 20. Like, there's, like, 40 assassination attempts on this president. Like, <laughs> it's like he's the president of, like, a developing nation, effectively. <laughs> like, it's like he's the president of the Philippines, basically. Yeah, exactly. Like, how there's always, they get assassinated all the time. Dude, it's, yeah, so... Power of the Dog, looping back around to that, man. Rating, I think about this a few different ways. It's obviously really well written. I think the it is one of those films that the writing and what the film became are two different things. Like, the acting and the directing. Like, you talked about um, Jane Campion, if I think that's how you're saying it. Yeah. Dude, she did such a good job. They're, they have so many really badass shots. Like, the shot of, like, Benedict Cumberbatch Phil's character is, like, beating the horse. Oh, my gosh, And then you dude. see, like... Like the shat, like the silhouette of him, like whipping the horse within the barn. The music is really good. The acting is really good. I'm not even gonna rate the writing because it's so hard for me to parse the writing. And because I want to say, like, the movie's a the movie as far as like an Oscar worthy drama is like a nine point nine. Yeah. Like it's so good as far as like entertainment value and like the movies I like to digest, I would put it a lot lower than that. I feels more like an 8.5 to me. Like, cause just cause I think it was a little bit too much of a slow burn for my taste. Sure. But then it's, it's, but again, I recognize that so much of the reason it's good as a film is not directly related to the writing, but I also don't want to take points off and saying, well, be, the movie's a 9.9, but I can't think it's all a 9.9. So I have to say the ratings an eight or the writing right. is an eight. So I, I, I don't know, man, it's, it's really good. I'll just kind of leave it at that. I, I'm going to give it, it an... It floats very highly. I'm, I'm going to give it an eight and a half. Um, mostly, again, just because of, like, the movies that I tend to gravitate to are different than this. Um, but yes. I can objectively see that this is, a, a, a you know, someone's masterpiece. It definitely comes through. Exactly. It's definitely worthy of all the praise it's getting. Looking at the, the Best Actor nominations, I realize now that I've only seen... Uh, this one out of the nominations because it's Javier Bardem for being the Ricardos, Benedict for this, Andrew Garfield for Tick Tick Boom, Will Smith for King Richard, and Denzel Washington for the Tragedy of Macbeth. And I have not seen any of those other movies except for this one. 
Um, so I'm going to say I, he deserves it. I'm going to say You're Benedict Cumberbatch uh, all the way. The, the only other scene that I've seen in any of those movies is that TikTok that I kept sharing to the group of Andrew Garfield yeah. and what's her face singing that song where they're like, I, I don't even want to try to do it, but they're just like, they're doing, they're singing along with each other and they're like jumping each over each other's heads and bouncing around. It's like, it's the weirdest. Bro, Hollywood loves a good, you know, like the, there have been three movies that have been nominated for the highest number of Oscars, 14 is the record for nominations. And La La Land was the last one to, to get nominated for 14 Oscars. So Hollywood That's loves crazy. a good musical, dude, especially one that deals with like the process of writing a movie. <laughs> like they, boy, howdy, like the artist won all those Oscars. La La Land swept up. I, I know Tick, Tick, Boom is more about Broadway, but in their realm yeah. for sure. So yeah, it'll be really interesting. I, I hope it'll be really, what I would also be interesting to see who wins best supporting um, because both uh, Cody Smith McPhee, who played Peter and Jesse Plemons are nominated for power of the dog. And then Kirsten Dunst was also nominated for supporting actress. So I think Peter was better. I mean, that's a much more like, you know, substantial character I feel like. And so he had a lot more to work with, but yeah, I would agree with you. He had, well, he also he he had the benefit of having significantly more character depth. Yeah, and it's a it's it's a, in a way it's it's a I don't want to say it's an easier acting job, but it's an acting job that allows you to explore different more emotions and stuff. We'll have to do an episode post Oscars that's going through the what won and how we feel about it. Maybe as a kickoff for our how we feel about winners uh, for through throughout the years, but. I watched Licorice Pizza again the other night because it came out on streaming, and God, that's so fucking good, dude. I love that movie. I really hope it wins Best Original by, Screenplay. By the way, I just realized that since we can like produce this episode, I don't know why I have to reference that the, the Andrew Garfield and Vanessa Hudgens song that they sing in Tick Tick Boom. Instead, I'm just gonna make this. The, I'm gonna make that the closer of our episode. There you go. I'm just gonna like find that video clip and like burn it onto this, and so. When you hear this episode, you're going to hear the most annoying or most fanciful song in the world. <laughs> it is fanciful. Whatever, I'll whatever, give you depending that. on your taste. I'll give you that. So People who skipped over this part are going to be so confused when they just hear that, I feel happy. <laughs> like, what the hell is happening? Um, anyways, sweet. Um, any closing thoughts, man? No, I think that's it. Uh, dude, if, if, if we tickled your fancy at all about Station Eleven, go watch it. It's... I know we made it sound yes. maybe a little bit inaccessible. We made it sound like it's some like elite pretentious piece of art, but it's it's worth giving a shot to because if you love it, you'll love it. Like it's so good. Yeah, I would say if I have to choose, if if you have to choose between recommending one of these films, I would or one of these pieces, I would recommend Station Eleven for yeah. sure. Yeah, IMO in my opinion. All right, Andy. As always, it's been real. Um, if you like what you heard, please like and subscribe and give us a rating and all that good stuff. We really appreciate it. And most importantly, tell your friends. As always, this is uh, Novel Discourse. I'm Sam. I'm Andy. We'll see you later. Peace. Later. Bye. Later, haters. See ya. When you rang to say that the ring was a wrong to ring. If I meant what I said when I said rings bored me. I'm not mad that you got mad when I got mad when you said I should go drive. You did when I gave you the ring, having said what I said.